0: chapter 10 of aesthetic as science of expression and general linguistic this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by lisa reichert aesthetic as science of expression and general linguistic by benedetto croce translated by douglas ainsley 1865 to 1948 CHAPTER Ten, Aesthetic FEELINGS AND THE DISTINCTION BETWEEN THE UGLY AND THE BEAUTIFUL. Passing on to the study of more complex concepts, where the aesthetic activity is found in conjunction with other orders of facts, and showing the mode of this union or complication, we find ourselves at once face to face with the concept of feeling and with the feelings which are called aesthetic. VARIOUS SIGNIFICANCES OF THE WORD FEELING The word feeling is one of the richest in meanings. We have already had occasion to meet with it once among those used to designate the spirit in its passivity, the matter or content of art, and also as synonym of impressions. Once again, and then the meaning was altogether different, we have met with it as designating the non-logical and non-historical character of the aesthetic fact, that is to say pure intuition a form of truth which defines no concept and states no fact. FEELING AS ACTIVITY But feeling is not here understood in either of these two senses, nor in the others in which it has nevertheless been used to designate other cognositive forms of spirit. Its meaning here is that of a special activity, of non cognositive nature, but possessing its two poles, positive and negative, in pleasure and pain this activity has always greatly embarrassed philosophers who have attempted either to deny it as an activity or to attribute it to nature and to exclude it from spirit both solutions bristle with difficulties and these are of such a kind that the solutions prove themselves finally unacceptable to anyone who examines them with care For of what could a non-spiritual activity consist, an activity of nature, when we have no other knowledge of activity save as spiritual, and of spirituality save as activity? Nature is, in this case, by definition, the merely passive, inert, mechanical, and material. On the other hand, the negation of the character of activity to feeling is energetically disproved by those very poles of pleasure and of pain which appear in it and manifest activity in its concreteness and we will say all a quiver identification of feeling with economic activity this critical conclusion ought to place us in the greatest embarrassment for in the sketch of the system of the spirit given above we have left no room for the new activity of which we are now obliged to recognize the existence. But activity of feeling, if it be activity, is not specially new. It has already had its place assigned to it in the system which we have sketched, where, however, it has been indicated under another name, as economic activity. What is called the activity of feeling is nothing but that more elementary and fundamental practical activity which we have distinguished from ethical activity and made to consist of the appetite and desire for some individual end, without any moral determination. Critique of Hedonism If feeling has been sometimes considered as organic or natural activity, this has happened precisely because it does not coincide either with logical, aesthetic, or ethical activity. Looked at from the standpoint of these three, which were the only ones admitted, it has seemed to lie outside the true and real spirit, the spirit in its aristocracy, and to be almost a determination of nature and of the soul, in so far as it is nature. Thus, the thesis, several times maintained, that the aesthetic activity, like the ethical and intellectual activities, is not feeling, becomes at once completely proved. This thesis was inexpugnable when sensation had already been reduced confusedly and implicitly to economic volition. The view which has been refuted is known by the name of hedonism. For hedonism, all the various forms of the spirit are reduced to one, which thus itself also loses its own distinctive character, and becomes something turbid and mysterious, like the shades in which all cows are black. Having effected this reduction and mutilation, THE HEDONISTS NATURALLY DO NOT SUCCEED IN SEEING ANYTHING ELSE IN ANY ACTIVITY BUT PLEASURE AND PAIN. THEY FIND NO SUBSTANTIAL DIFFERENCE BETWEEN THE PLEASURE OF ART AND THAT OF AN EASY DIGESTION, BETWEEN THE PLEASURE OF A GOOD ACTION AND THAT OF BREATHING THE FRESH AIR WITH WIDE EXPANDED LUNGS. FEELING AS A CONCOMITANT TO EVERY FORM OF ACTIVITY But if the activity of feeling in the sense here defined must not be substituted for all the other forms of spiritual activity, we have not said that it cannot accompany them. Indeed it accompanies them of necessity, because they are all in close relation, both with one another and with the elementary volitional form. Therefore each of them has for concomitants individual volitions and volitional pleasures and pains, which are known as feeling. But we must not confound what is concomitant with the principal fact and take the one for the other. The discovery of the truth, or the satisfaction of a moral duty fulfilled, produces in us a joy which makes our whole being vibrate, for by attaining to those forms of spiritual activity, it attains at the same time that to which it was practically tending, as to its end, during the effort nevertheless economic or hedonistic satisfaction ethical satisfaction aesthetic satisfaction intellectual satisfaction remain always distinct even when in union thus is solved at the same time the much debated question which has seemed not wrongly a matter of life or death for aesthetic science namely whether the feeling and the pleasure precede or follow are cause or effect of the aesthetic fact. We must enlarge this question to include the relation between the various spiritual forms, and solve it in the sense that in the unity of the spirit one cannot talk of cause and effect, and of what comes first and what follows it in time. And once the relation above exposed is established, the statements— which it is customary to make, as to the nature of aesthetic, moral, intellectual, and even, as is sometimes said, economic feelings, must also fall. In this last case it is clear that it is a question not of two terms but of one, and the quest of economic feeling can be but that same one concerning the economic activity. But in the other cases also the search can never be directed to the substantive but to the adjective aesthetic morality logic explain the coloring of the feelings as aesthetic moral and intellectual while feeling studied alone will never explain those refractions meaning of certain ordinary distinctions of feelings a further consequence is that we can free ourselves from the distinction between values or feelings of value and feelings that are merely hedonistic and without value also from other similar distinctions, like those between disinterested feelings and interested feelings, between objective feelings, and the others that are not objective but simply subjective, between feelings of approval, and others of mere pleasure, Gefallen and Virgnügen of the Germans. Those distinctions strove hard to save the three spiritual forms, which have been recognized as the triad of the true, the good, and the beautiful, from confusion with the fourth form, still unknown, yet insidious through its indeterminateness, and mother of scandals. For us this triad has finished its task, because we are capable of reaching the distinction far more directly, by welcoming even the selfish, subjective, merely pleasurable feelings, among the respectable forms of the spirit. And where formerly antitheses were conceived of, by ourselves and others, between value and feelings, as between spirituality and naturality, henceforth we see nothing but difference between value and value. Value and disvalue, the contraries and their union. As has already been said, the economic feeling or activity reveals itself as divided into two poles, positive and negative, pleasure and pain, which we can now translate into useful and useless or hurtful. This by partition, has already been noted above as a mark of the active character of feeling, precisely because the same bipartition is found in all forms of activity. If each of these is a value, each has opposed to it anti-value or disvalue. Absence of value is not sufficient to cause disvalue, but activity and passivity must be struggling between themselves, without the one getting the better of the other hence the contradiction and the disvalue of the activity that is embarrassed contested or interrupted value is activity that unfolds itself freely disvalue is its contrary we will content ourselves with this definition of the two terms without entering into the problem of the relation between value and disvalue that is between the problem of contraries are these to be thought of dualistically as two beings or two orders of beings like Ormuzd and Araman, angels and devils, enemies to one another, or as a unity, which is also contrariety. This definition of the two terms will be sufficient for our purpose, which is to make clear aesthetic activity in particular, and one of the most obscure and disputed concepts of aesthetic which arises at this point, the concept of the beautiful. The beautiful as the value of expression, or expression and nothing more. Aesthetic, intellectual, economic, and ethical values and disvalues are variously denominated in current speech. Beautiful, true, good, useful, just, and so on. These words designate the free development of spiritual activity, action, scientific research, artistic production, when they are successful. Ugly, false, bad, useless, unbecoming, unjust, inexact, designate embarrassed activity, the product of which is a failure. In linguistic usage these denominations are being continually shifted from one order of facts to another, and from this to that. Beautiful, for instance, is said not only of a successful expression, but also of a scientific truth, of an action successfully achieved, and of a moral action. Thus we talk of an intellectual beauty, of a beautiful action of a moral beauty many philosophers especially aestheticians have lost their heads in their pursuit of these most varied uses they have entered an inextricable and impervious verbal labyrinth for this reason it has hitherto seemed convenient studiously to avoid the use of the word beautiful to indicate successful expression but after all the explanations that have been given and all danger of misunderstanding being now dissipated and since, on the other hand, we cannot fail to recognize that the prevailing tendency, alike in current speech and in philosophy, is to limit the meaning of the vocable beautiful altogether to the aesthetic value, we may define beauty as successful expression, or better, as expression and nothing more, because expression, when it is not successful, is not expression. The ugly and the elements of beauty which compose it, consequently the ugly is unsuccessful expression the paradox is true that in works of art that are failures the beautiful is present as unity and the ugly as multiplicity thus with regard to works of art that are more or less failures we talk of qualities that is to say of those parts of them that are beautiful we do not talk thus of perfect works It is in fact impossible to enumerate their qualities or to designate those parts of them that are beautiful. In them there is complete fusion. They have but one quality. Life circulates in the whole organism. It is not withdrawn into certain parts. The qualities of works that are failures may be of various degrees. They may even be very great, The beautiful does not possess degrees, for there is no conceiving a more beautiful, that is, an expressive that is more expressive, an adequate that is more than adequate. Ugliness, on the other hand, does possess degrees, from the rather ugly, or almost beautiful, to the extremely ugly. But if the ugly were complete, that is to say, without any element of beauty, it would for that very reason cease to be ugly because in it would be absent the contradiction which is the reason of its existence the disvalue would become non-value activity would give place to passivity with which it is not at war save when there effectively is war illusions that there exist expressions which are neither beautiful nor ugly And because the distinctive consciousness of the beautiful and of the ugly is based on the contrasts and contradictions in which aesthetic activity is developed, it is evident that this consciousness becomes attenuated to the point of disappearing altogether, as we descend from the more complicated to the more simple, and to the simplest cases of expression. From this arises the illusion that there are expressions which are neither beautiful nor ugly those which are obtained without sensible effort and appear easy and natural being so considered true aesthetic feelings and concomitant or accidental feelings the whole mystery of the beautiful and the ugly is reduced to these henceforth most easy definitions should any one object that there exist perfect aesthetic expressions before which no pleasure is felt and others perhaps even failures which give him the greatest pleasure it is necessary to advise him to pay great attention, as regards the aesthetic fact, to that only which is truly aesthetic pleasure. Aesthetic pleasure is sometimes reinforced by pleasures arising from extraneous facts, which are only casually found united with it. The poet, or any other artist, affords an instance of purely aesthetic pleasure during the moment in which he sees, or has the intuition of, his work for the first time, that is to say, when his impressions take form, and his countenance is irradiated with the divine joy of the Creator. On the other hand, a mixed pleasure is experienced by any one who goes to the theatre after a day's work to witness a comedy, when the pleasure of rest and amusement, and that of laughingly snatching a nail from the gaping coffin, is accompanied at a certain moment by real aesthetic pleasure, obtained from the art of the dramatist and of the actors. The same may be said of the artist who looks upon his labor with pleasure, when it is finished, experiencing, in addition to the aesthetic pleasure, that very different one which arises from the thought of self-love satisfied, or of the economic gain which will come to him from his work. Examples could be multiplied. Critique of Apparent Feelings A category of apparent aesthetic feelings has been formed in modern aesthetic, These have nothing to do with the aesthetic sensations of pleasure arising from the form, that is to say, from the work of art. On the contrary, they arise from the content of the work of art. It has been observed that artistic representations arouse pleasure and pain in their infinite variety and gradations. We tremble with anxiety, we rejoice, we fear, we laugh, we weep, we desire, with the personages of a drama or of a romance, with the figures in a picture, or with the melody of music. But these feelings are not those that would give occasion to the real fact outside art. That is to say, they are the same in quality, but they are quantitatively an attenuation. Aesthetic and apparent pleasure and pain are slight, of little depth, and changeable. We have no need to treat of these apparent feelings, for the good reason that we have already amply discussed them. Indeed, we have treated of them alone. What are ever feelings that become apparent or manifest but feelings objectified, intensified, expressed? And it is natural that they do not trouble and agitate as passionately as do those of real life, because those were matter, these are form and activity, those true and proper feelings, these intuitions and expressions. The formula, then, of apparent feelings is nothing but a tautology the best that can be done is to run the pen through it end of chapter 10 recording by lisa ricker